Welcome to the National Native Network podcast series. Today we're presenting our webinar archive, Cervical Cancer and American Indian Women, presented on January 19th, 2022. To view the webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the Resources tab and the Webinar Archive tab. Please enjoy our presentation. Hello and greetings. My name is Mike Collette with the National Native Network, a program of the Intertribal Council of Michigan, and welcome to the NNN webinar series on cancer risk reduction in Indian country. This webinar is titled Cervical Cancer in American Indian Women. This technical assistance webinar is being hosted by the National Native Network, which offers technical assistance and resources for commercial tobacco and cancer prevention and control throughout Indian Country and the Indian Health Service Clinical Support Center. Your presenter today is Amanda Youngers, a certified midwife at the O8 Health Center. We are pleased to offer continuing education credits for participants in this webinar. No commercial interest support was used to fund this activity. This activity is designated one contact hour for nurses and physicians. And to obtain a certificate of continuing education, you must be registered for the course, participate in the webinar in its entirety, and submit a completed post-webinar survey. Evaluation surveys will be emailed out to participants uh, tomorrow um, after the webinar is presented today. There will be a link to SurveyMonkey in the email. At the conclusion of this activity, the healthcare team will be able to identify the risk factors for HPV-related infections and cancer among American Indian women employ strategies to decrease anxiety associated with cervical cancer screening and follow-up procedures, and determine ways to bundle care to increase screening rates for cervical cancer. If you have any questions, please type your questions into the question box on your Zoom panel. Questions will be answered during the last few minutes of the webinar. Thank you, and at this time, I will throw it to Amanda Youngers. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for being here. And I really appreciate the opportunity to present with all of you today. Um, we're gonna talk about cervical cancer in American Indian women today, as well as just the risk factors that we've continued to see. So I am currently a certified nurse midwife. I am an officer in the public health, United States Public Health Service, and I have no other financial disclosures. As Mike mentioned, here are the objectives for our presentation today. And um, we have another follow-up meeting next webinar next week to really talk about more in-depth screening mechanisms as well as follow-up care for cervical cancer. So first of all, to talk about cervical health, I think 
when we talked back in October for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I really had mentioned that I wanted to focus on breast health month. And I think the same applies for cervical cancers. You know, cancer is a scary word. It tends to drive people away from getting health care. And so if we talk about women's health and cervical health, uh, I think it's really important to note that there's a lot of things that can happen for women uh, along the lifespan of their age. And the cervical health is really important. So the cervix is just a brief discussion here is the bottom of our uterus. And it really has a very unique um, transformation zone that makes it susceptible to a lot of infections. And so you can see here on the diagram that the transformation zone kind of goes up into the cervix, into this canal. And that transformation zone contains stem cells that are continually changing. And those cells are very susceptible to infections, especially at a younger age for you know, teens and 20 year olds. It's estimated that um, of sexually active teens and 20 somethings, 90% of them have an HPV infection at some point during that time. Most of those infections won't go noticed and many of them will clear up on their own, but it's because of that transformation zone of those cells that are continually changing and really kind of sucking up the virus that cause our bodies as women to be susceptible to cervical cancer. Um, the impact of cervical cancer, it's noted that over 13,000 women in the US each year will be diagnosed um, and most of them over the age of 30. Over 4,000 people will die from the disease annually. And of special note, especially for our populations is that Alaska Native and American Indian women are nearly twice as likely to develop cervical cancer than white women and four times more likely to die from it. Um, and then also most Alaska Native and American Indian women have been also noted to have higher rates of HPV associated cancers. So let's talk about this human papillomavirus. It's a very, very common virus. It's caused by the human papillomavirus and there's low risks and high risks and many other risks that don't even are types that even cause cancer. There's types that cause foot warts and hand warts, um, but the HPV virus causes the, can infect the cells on the surface of the skin, including the lining of the genitals, the anus, the mouth, the throat, but not in the blood or internal organs. So you can't get, you know, liver cancer from HPV. So it does spread through skin to skin contact. So you don't have to have some kind of mucus contact. Oh, I am sorry about that guys. Scrolling through here too fast. Let's go back. There you go. Okay, sorry about that. So risk factors include that are linked to cancers of the cervix, vagina and vulva, penile cancer in men and women, um, or penile cancer in men and cancer of the anus, mouth and throat. So a lot of people ask me as a practitioner, well, why should I get my male or my son vaccinated for HPV? And that's a really important discussion 
for us to have as practitioners and as healthcare providers, because not only do does HPV cause cervical cancer, but it also causes many types of oral pharyngeal cancers. And so we're starting to see that many of these oral pharyngeal cancers are actually HPV high risk related from oral sexual behavior um, in our teens and our twenties that is not detected. So um, when you talk about it that way, I think it really helps parents reframe it that this is a risk factor. It's not from chewing tobacco. It's not from um, smoking. All those things contribute, but really it goes down to this infection that kids can pick up quite easily, you know, through sexual experimentation. So here's a discussion slide um, of how cervical cancer and the HPV virus infects um, our bodies. So really when I talk to women and say, you have HPV, they could have had this 10 years ago and never noticed it. And what you'll see on that number one slide is that the HPV virus goes into the cervix and it transmits all the way down to the basement layer. And so that infection can live there sometimes several weeks and sometimes it goes on for many, many years. As that virus replicates into the body, it incorporates itself into the cervical cells and then turns off the oncogenes. So the oncogenes cause our cells in our body to die, to slough off, just like the layers of our skin are constantly sloughing off and dying and going away. What the HPV virus does is it replicates and causes those oncogenes in those cervical cells to turn off. And then they keep replicating. And so you can see that the infection spreads through the cervix and continues to go up through the cervix. And it may not get to the surface layer of a woman's body until 10 to 30 years later. So all of a sudden, you know, she's had her, her pap smears in her twenties, she's had her children, and then she's in her forties or fifties and suddenly says, well, I haven't come in for a pap smear for many years. I'm done having babies. That was the last time I had a pap smear. And all of a sudden she's got invasive cervical cancer that's been undetected because it really wasn't picked up by routine cervical cancer screenings that she may have missed, but also she had been asymptomatic and had that virus had not been detected earlier in her life, even though it probably was still present at that point. Risk factors for cervical disease are many. Certainly we just talked about the high-risk HPV infection, but also we can show that women who have become sexually active at a young age, who've had multiple sexual partners. Um, we know that smoking and tobacco use causes every type of cancer, but it also causes that cervical infection to grow faster. And so when I'm counseling women about tobacco cessation and their use of tobacco, I basically, and I know that they have a high risk type of HPV. I tell them that tobacco is feeding the virus. It's making it grow faster, it makes it replicate faster. And so it's going to increase your risk of that virus continuing to grow instead of having your immune system recognize the virus and kick it out. Chlamydia infection has been shown to mitigate your immunity in the cervix and it may help the HPV virus grow. So certainly women who've had co-infections 
or previous infections are at higher risk and having multiple full-term pregnancies. And that's noted as three or more. So not necessarily that the pregnancies itself have caused, but certainly you have an increased risk of or increased exposure to estrogen and progesterone during pregnancies, um, your cervix changes, but also you've probably um, possibly had more sexual partners. And so that's definitely a correlative factor. Um, having been at a young age for your first full-term pregnancy, you're more likely to have been exposed to the HPV virus younger. Economic status, certainly just because women who are at a lower economic status don't tend to get cervical cancer or any preventative health screenings as much. And then DES is a, it was a medication given in the 1970s to women to prevent miscarriage, but in doing so, it found that the women's offspring, the females, had an increased risk of cervical cancer and dysplasia, and 90% of women who had been exposed to HPV or um, had cervical cancer in these women had had DES. So they have a different dysplastic adenocarcinoma that's specific to that chemical. Weakened immune system, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, but HIV and in immunocompromised women, including people who are on rheumatoid meds, maybe have lupus, also are at risk of cervical disease. And then there is a family history component, so mother or sister. Now, we know HPV is not genetically passed on through offspring, but there may be a component of the woman's family history that may be affecting her immune system to decrease her body's uh, ability to fight that virus off. So factors to lower HPV disease and cervical disease include intrauterine device. So it has been found that women who use an IUD for even less than a year um, significantly have a decreased risk of cervical cancer. And it's, there's a lot of hypothesis regarding that, but probably the inflammatory response of the cervix to the IUD, the thickened cervical mucus, which is the main component of an IUD's ability for contraception, but that cervical mucus probably has a protective effect for women as well. And that protective effect is also noted even after the IUD is discontinued. Limiting your exposure to HPV, which of course includes condom use and tobacco cessation, like I'd mentioned before, trying to not feed that virus so that your immune system can really decrease. And of course we talk about vaccines. Vaccines are a lot in the news for COVID and for influenza, but also we can't forget that as we're seeing our teens and our young 20 year olds again into the healthcare system, that we need to make sure that we're talking about the HPV vaccination for young boys and women. Um, and it's recommended that people start these vaccines between the ages of nine and 12. Now, of course, it's uncomfortable for us to talk about uh, our cancer that's caused by a sexually transmitted disease. But most people get the HP or hepatitis B vaccine at birth, and we're not telling these newborns, well, that's because, you know, hepatitis B is caused from a sexually transmitted disease, which it is. Um, HPV is no different. 
So we really need to treat it as a routine vaccine to prevent not only cervical cancer, but oral pharyngeal cancer, and really looking at it as a whole community and a whole village to protect that um, our women and our children as well. So children and young adults who are ages 13 to 26 should also get the vaccination series as soon as possible. The benefit of really talking to our younger clients and our younger relatives about the vaccination is that if the children do get the vaccines between ages nine and 12, they can only have, they only have to have the two first doses, whereas older children and adults who start the vaccine series after the age of 13 do need the full um, three, three vaccines. And then the Academy of Immunizations and Prevention program also just recommends that vaccinations continue for the ages 26 to 45. The CDC does not recommend this, but certainly the advisory for the Immunization Council does, because we do see that with new partners or as a woman gets older, she is still at risk for HPV disease. So let's talk a little bit more about HPV infections in American Indian women. So it is noted that American Indian women are not only at a higher risk for cervical cancer, but also have a higher morbidity and mortality from cervical cancer. And in this newest research from 2018, Dr. Naomi Lee found that in women who had self-collected swabs in the Great Plains area, that 34% of them were positive for at least one type of high-risk HPV. The most common genotypes were HPV 51, 58, and 52. Um, and a lot of times we note that the first HPV vaccines that were available, the Gardasil 4, which was a quadrivalent, which protected against type 6 and 11, which are low-risk types of HPV causing genital warts, and then type 16 and 18, which are usually noted to be the most oncogenic or the most cancer-causing, only 4.3% of women that were positive were actually positive for HPV 18 in this population, and only 2.9% were positive for 16. Um, of also note that type 51, which is a very common uh, high-risk HPV type found in Northern Plains American Indian women, What's not, it's not covered by available vaccines. So even if a woman is fully vaccinated from the HPV viruses, it's only covering either the four types if she's gotten the earlier type of the Gardasil or nine types, which is the newer Gardasil. So it's still important that we are controlling for health factors, promoting healthy life choices, as well as continuing HPV cervical cancer screenings. And here's another study. So this population has been well studied um, for HPV disease. And this was done by Dr. Schmidt Griminger and Dr. Maria Bell out of Stanford in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And they did a cross-sectional study between American Indian women and Caucasian women in South Dakota. And they also found that American Indian women had a broader spectrum of HPV viruses and notably that the HPV 16 and 18 were not the most prevalent types. So specifically back in 2011, prior to the Gardasil 9 being released, um, the vaccines were not covering the type, 
types of HPV that we were seeing in American Indian women. So really here's the takeaway from the HPV research. And this is specific to Great Plains and Northern- I didn't get that. Could you try again? Sorry, Siri's talking to me. Um, to HPV disease is that the Gardasil 9 is the most superior vaccine and is currently the one that's most often given. So this one covers type 16, 18, 31, 33, 45, 52, 58, as well as HPV type six and 11, which cause warts. Um, you can see here that those are the ages that it's covered for, but as I mentioned before, you can give it up to the age 45. Um, it's recommended to do the th three doses and hopefully we are getting that covered through uh, our immunization programs. So here's another slide, just HPV prevention. So really making sure that all of our families know that for even for our boys and our men that oral pharyngeal cancer, um, cancer of the throat, penile cancer, anal cancer, they're all preventative by the HPV vaccine. And that in women, again, oral pharyngeal cancer, vaginal, cervical, anal, and vulvar cancer are all prevented by the vaccine. So um, it's also noted that these are safe. Over 57 million doses have been given with zero serious side effects, and they can, can be combined. So if we have our teens coming in for their COVID shots or for their boosters now that the Pfizer has been approved for um, booster for 12 and up, really checking their immunizations and offering multiple immunizations at the same time so that we can bundle these services and making sure that kids are covered when they're coming in for care. Here's a discussion point on pap smear screenings. So it's not just enough to get our families and our youth vaccinated which is certainly the primary prevention, but we need to go into pap smear screenings. So it's no longer recommended that a woman under the age of 21 have any pap smear screening. And that really changed probably within the last five years because we found that that transformation zone, going back from the first slide, that transformation zone in young women under the age of 21 is really changing and transformative during the teen years. And so we were seeing a lot of high risk dysplastic or abnormal changes in young women. But when those were followed out through multiple, multiple studies across the, the world and really studied a lot in Scandinavian countries, that those high risk dysplastic um, lesions that looked like cervical cancer often disappeared by the time the woman was 21. So Certainly we don't wanna put a young girl at risk for preterm labor or incompetent cervix by doing invasive procedures to treat the cervical cancer or these pre-cancerous pre lesions um, when we know that if we're following them out beyond the age of 21, oftentimes those uh, infections will clear up on their own and the body kind of takes care of itself. However, at the age of 21, we definitely wanna make sure that young women are coming in for pap smears every three years. Um, and between the ages of 21 and 30, they only need a pap smear every three years, as long as they're normal. 
um, after the age of 30 to 65, they can continue doing pap smears every three years, or they can do co-testing, which is really the recommended gold standard now. And we'll talk about that because pap smears only look at the surface layer of the cervix and aren't really checking for that high-risk HPV disease. And so oftentimes a woman may be carrying that virus, but her pap smear or the surface cells may not be changing yet. So if we can pick up that HPV virus earlier and continue to monitor it through colposcopy or more frequent pap smears, we may pick up earlier precancerous lesions before they turn into invasive cancer. So really talking to women about the co-testing after the age of 30. And if they have that and it's negative, then they can go out to every five years, which is also definitely an incentive for a lot of women. Um, after the age of 65, as long as they've had a pap smear that is normal and they haven't had any high grade lesions um, that have required a colposcopy or a leap or something or any treatment for any cervical cancer, they can discontinue screenings. And as women's health providers, it definitely gets a little bit more confusing as these abnormal cells pop up. So if a woman has had a high grade lesion or a CIN two or three and has had to have treatment, whether it's cryotherapy, a leap or a cone biopsy, she needs to continue those cervical cancer screens out for 20 years beyond that last treatment. Um, so we may be you know, doing a pap smear on somebody that's 80 years old. However, if they've had normal pap smears, they can discontinue. There is a caveat and the American Society for Cervical Cancer Prevention and Colposcopy have recommended that women who are immunocompromised, so that's women who have, are living with HIV, and including women who maybe have a solid organ transplant, are on immunosuppression meds for rheumatoid or lupus or other autoimmune diseases, that they need to probably continue having more frequent pap smears because that HPV just doesn't clear their, their bodies as frequently. So really making sure that not only are we just doing their pap smear, but we're really talking to women about their risk factors and noting if they've had a transplant or they're seeing a rheumatologist for some reason that we collaborate with that provider to make sure that they're getting adequate screenings because they may need screenings every three years, regardless of their HPV. Discussing barriers to care is really important because I think it's hard to get women in to do a pap smear, regardless of where you live. But certainly these are the most common factors that were found in, um, in a study from the clinical epidemiology and global health. So certainly fear of vaginal exams, they may find them painful, expensive social stigma of going to the doctor, lack of symptoms, not feeling well, lack of adequate healthcare facilities or lack of awareness. And if we go back to our indigenous communities, I think we can see that these may be even more important factors to look at for our indigenous women, because if you live in a small community and you're going to the clinic and you're sitting in the women's health clinic, all of a sudden your whole community is gonna think, well, she has an STD or maybe she's pregnant. And so really some confidentiality concerns for these young women um, 
if they're getting care at an Indian Health Service, it may not be expensive, but it may be expensive to get there. So certainly traveling to a facility to get their pap smear done, uh, asking for rides, traveling through bad weather, all the kind of things. And then a lot of women think that they're not having any symptoms. They've had the same partner, they've had their kids, they're not having any concerns, so they're not really having any problems. And so they would rather not go to the hospital, especially if they've got other kids or jobs and things that they need to take, take care of. Certainly community uh, buy-in with providers, making sure that the provider, that they're welcoming and that the, our relatives that are seeking care feel comfortable. And so lack of adequate healthcare facilities. A lot of indigenous women that I've worked with often feel much more comfortable seeing a another woman for their healthcare. And so if they have to go see a male doctor for their pap smear, especially if they've been a victim of sexual abuse at some point in their life, that can be a definite um, barrier for them to get in for their care. Talking about COVID and cancer, certainly we've seen a decrease in all kinds of cancer screenings throughout the country during the times of COVID. But that especially in Indian country, people are closed in, tribal ordinances may have no travel orders still in place. And there's a big fear of taking care of multi-generational families and bringing COVID back to the home. So this was a study done by Kaiser Permanente in California, but even in California with a lot of access to care and Medi-Cal, they found that during the stay at home order, screenings for cervical cancer were decreased by 80%. And then after those screening, those stay-at-home orders were lifted, they found that rates nearly returned to normal. But we're not seeing that throughout the country. There are still a lot of places that are still struggling to get women in for cancer screenings. Another research article I read from the CDC found that women Found, didn't want to bother their medical providers during COVID outbreaks that they felt like providers were too busy dealing with cancer or with COVID cases to come in for preventative health care. Pediatricians haven't been seen, kids for really normal, well child care as well. So our immunizations for our children have decreased. So it's really now as we're kind of getting into this normal endemic COVID phase that we start to increase cancer screenings again and de deciding how we can increase those opportunities for screenings. Certainly, I think, you know, the FDA has not approved self-swabs, but you could see from the previous study in 2018 that self-swabs for HPV disease have been trialed. They're very effective and the tolerability for those swabs is really well accepted for most women. It's almost like putting a tampon in, pulling it out and putting it in the mail. So I suspect in the next five to 10 years, we will see cervical cancer screenings drastically change from going to a provider's office for an invasive exam to a self-collected swab that you can send in the mail, often like an IFOB for colorectal cancer. So those technologies are coming and really utilizing telemedicine. I use tele telemedicine all the time um, for reproductive health care, for prenatal visits. And then when women do need cervical cancer screenings, getting them in, but they've had contact with me throughout the year 
so they don't feel like they've been lost in the shuffle of COVID. And so I may start somebody on birth control pills through a telemedicine visit, but then schedule her a month or two out for an in-person visit. And then while she's there, I'll capture her for her cervical cancer screening and pap smear. Again, never miss an opportunity. So in 2012, 8 million women were not screened within the last five years. And certainly that women, that statistic still continues today and especially with COVID. So we can see here that, you know, on the bottom, we have normal cervical cells and we really want to make sure that we're getting that opportunity to vaccinate children before they're exposed to that HPV virus so that their bodies can really build up an excellent immune response. And then it's also been shown that those vaccinations aren't really wearing off. So if a child is vaccinated early, you know, in the nine to 12 year old range, that immunity from those Gardasil vaccines really is carrying long-term and we're not seeing breakthrough infections later at this point. And those uh, immunizations have been out for 15 plus years now. So we're really seeing a strong, st stable immune response. Um, HPV infections certainly do occur. And so really making sure that we're getting those women screened and then that if they do have a precancer, that we're getting them in for those colposcopies and for those other cancer screenings throughout their, their lifespan. So things that I've found to be very useful in getting women to come in for cervical cancer screening is to really capture that opportunity. A lot of times at my facility, we have a workroom um, with multiple providers. So my family nurse practitioners are sitting next to me and we have a very collegial uh, environment, which is really helpful for, for indigenous people who are coming in for their care. But if somebody's really overdue for their pap smear and I have a no-show and my colleague has a patient that's overdue, I can just pull her over and say, well, you're already here. Let's just capture your pap smear. Another thing that my, our nurses do is if somebody's coming in for their diabetes screens, she'll then book me adjacent so that I'll have She'll have a 9.30 appointment with her primary care provider, and then she'll have a 10 o'clock appointment with me. So she's not leaving the building. She's not having to go across town, and she's not having to come back for another visit, and everything is done on that same day. Certainly, we saw in a previous slide that women have cost concerns, and so this is where the breast, breast cancer and cervical cancer prevention screening program, or in South Dakota, it's called All Women Count. Um, the Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board have honorary women, and these organizations are run through grants through the often the Department of Health in each state or through national um, breast and cervical cancer screening programs. And these programs often are able to pay for cervical cancer and breast cancer screenings at no cost to the relative. So she can come in, she can get those cancer screenings done. And then if additional follow-up screens have to be done, whether it's a colposcopy or a breast biopsy or a diagnostic mammogram, those additional cancer follow-ups can be paid for through the programs. Oftentimes women don't wanna come back in for additional screenings because they're worried about cost or worried about getting referred out. And so if we can capture these relatives and get them signed up for these programs at hello, 
then oftentimes they feel much more at ease of getting those screenings because they're not feeling like they're going to be held accountable for bills for a cancer later on, that they can get these screenings done and that they'll be paid through these grant programs. Really helping women to their appointments. So if you can offer gas cards for to help people get to their appointments, um, sending them reminders, we send out reminder cards as well as um, calling people the day ahead, uh, getting your CHRs on board to bring women in for screenings or doing a blitz, you know, so maybe you have a cervical cancer screening opportunity after school or on a Saturday so that other community programs can come in and it can be a walk-in kind of come in, get your pap smear done and get some cookies and leave. So I think it's really important to decrease anxiety regarding cervical cancer. The cancer itself for any kind of cancer is very scary for most women. They're worried about losing their families or having to go through expensive treatments that may be far away. So really making sure that women know that cervical cancer is one of the most preventable cancers that we have available to us and, or that is out there and that the cervical cancer screenings really have shown to decrease a woman's risk of getting cervical cancer um, and that the treatments for precancerous lesions are often can be done in the same day. Um, if they find a precancerous lesion that you can come back, have a, a cone biopsy or a leap done or cryotherapy. And often it can go away and she can go out, go on to live a normal life. I am sorry about that guys. There we go. Okay. And HPV co-testing. So really making sure that we're utilizing all of the different components and technology so that we can decrease the frequency that women have to come in. So if your clinic can offer the cervical cancer co-testing and the HPV co-testing, that's just really important for women so that they don't have to come in as often. So here are some of the other things we use at my clinic. Um, we've gotten these Eloquil aromatabs and I find aromatherapy even in previous clinics to be very helpful for women who are having maybe some anxiety about the procedure, just maybe have a history of sexual abuse or domestic violence. And so these tabs basically tear off. I can stick them on their shirt and we use the lavender sandalwood and then the orange peppermint. And they're very helpful to just kind of decrease that anxiety. Maybe you have a diffuser in your room. Um, I often let women pick which scent they want so that they are really having con increased control over their their procedure and through their screenings. We also use them in our mammogram department and they've been very helpful for women, especially when they're having to go undergo um, mammograms for diagnostic purposes or breast ultrasounds. So, and I really want to make sure that we treat every clinical opportunity as a, as a ceremony. When you go into a room with a relative and just welcoming them, making them feel comfortable, giving them the time to discuss their fears and their concerns and praising her for coming in, that this is your time that I'm honoring you and your health. Um, how can I help you increase your health? How can I, what concerns do you have today? 
So encouraging her to bring others. So if she's had a good experience, you know, have her bring her auntie, have her bring her sister. We know that women talk in circles and they have close friends and relatives. So making sure that women can come in and that they're encouraging others to also come in and allowing her time. So making sure that she's not feeling rushed through her things. If she has a concern about a mole on her face, yeah, listen to her concern and make sure that you can get her in with her primary care provider if you don't do that as well, Um, but allowing her time to take care of herself. Bundling services, like I mentioned before, our primary care team definitely bundles services so that if a patient's coming in for her thyroid or her diabetes or her hypertension, that she gets an appointment with me the same day. Um, and that can be really, really helpful to make sure that patients come in for their appointments. They feel like they're already there, so they're not making a bother. And then it also for COVID exposure, they're only coming in once. So that's really important encouraging same day mammogram and pap smears. So if they're already here for a pap smear and she can go down to the mammogram or the radiology department, if it's in the same building, having a same day system so that women can get that mammogram done at the same time. And then making sure that they're really well woman exams. So bundling her care with, you know, thyroid testing, cholesterol, STI screenings. If she's coming in for contraception, offering or an STI, say she has vaginal discharge, say, you know what, I'm down here, I'm just gonna do your pap smear, you do for it anyway. And then really making sure, because it does not take much more time to collect a pap smear than it does to do a swab for a vaginal infection or to check for IUD strings. So really bundling those services um, because ultimately the women are gonna benefit from that care. And then offering gas vouchers, if there's a way that you can get a grant or collaborate with your health system to be able to offer gas vouchers as a way of saying like, thank you for your for coming. This is not an incentive. We don't ever wanna use the word incentive, but we're really honoring you for your time and making sure that you can get to your other appointments because your time is incredibly important to us. So I just wanna say thank you. Um, certainly this slide it really, there's so many components to cervical health and early detection, but also prevention through vaccines, that this is, I hope in 10 years, gonna be much, much less of an issue than we see it today. And we've definitely seen a decrease overall, even in 10 years ago. So I know that we're moving in the right direction, but we have lots of room to improve and I know we will, we will get there. Thank you. All right, thank you, Amanda. Um, well, it looks like that we have about 18 minutes, 17 minutes or so for um, questions. So if anybody has any questions, please type them into the question box, into the Q&A box on your uh, Zoom platform. Um, also keep in mind that uh, we are gonna send out an evaluation tomorrow on this presentation. So um, feel free to click that uh, link that you'll receive tomorrow and let us know how we did. And we will uh, uh, also offer uh, continuing education uh, certificates for um, your help on the evaluation. We do have a couple of webinars still coming up. Um, cool. One tomorrow, uh, next week, one next week, um, Amanda will be back um, talking about surviving the journey through cervical cancer on January 26th. 
And then another webinar on March 30th on smoke-free tribal housing policies. So keep your eyes open for that. You can um, register by going to keepitsacred.itcmi.org forward slash events right now. Um, this person here wrote in the chat box, um, where can you purchase or get the aromatherapy, aromatherapy cards for the clients? So um, I'm just typing in here real quick, but you can order them through Medline or McKesson, both health service systems have them available. They're called Eloquil, Eloquil. And if you just put them in a search box, you can find them. But I found that they're best priced through Medline or McKesson. And especially if we're working in an IHS, you can get those through federal contracting sites through McKesson or Medline. Awesome. So yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to type them into the Q&A box. Um, and then uh, feel free to uh, follow the um, National Native Network um, online. You can follow us at keepitsacred.org. And we are also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Um, this person here asks if we'll be able to share the slides. The slides will be available um, under the um, resources and webinar archive tab at keepitsacred.org uh, no later than tomorrow. So keep your eyes open for that. And then this other person here asks, how do you address birth control options in relation to cervical cancer risks? That's a really great question. As I mentioned previously, um, that IUDs do decrease your risk of cervical cancer because of the component of the cervical mucus. And it has been shown as well, and I didn't mention in in the slides, but oral contraceptives have been shown to increase your risk of cervical cancer and HPV infections. We're not quite sure why. It may be because of the increased estrogen and progesterone exposure that uh, women have while they're using the combined contraceptives, but it's found that women, when women stop or discontinue the use of oral contraceptives, their uh, risk often falls back to pre-use pre levels. So talking to women that even if you are on a contraceptive, you know, this is protecting you against pregnancy, but it's not protecting you against cervical cancer, other sexually transmitted infections. And so bundling it all together that this is your health, this is your body, be stingy with your body and choosing wisely who you exposing your body to using condoms and talking really about negotiating condom use with every partner is incredibly important, but then also talking about other options that maybe a woman wants to use to actually decrease her risk. Uh, this person here asks, are HPV screenings available for men? No. And that's another thing. So I think a lot of women feel very stigmatized when they are 50 and all of a sudden they come in with an HPV infection and they're like, I'm with the same partner. I've been married for 20 years. I've been married for 30 years. Where is this infection coming from? Um, we don't know. You know, you may have gotten it from a first partner many, many years ago. You may have gotten it from your husband who may have had a partner 40 years ago, but there are no HPV tests for men. So it really is opening up a Pandora's box for women. 
And it can be very stigmatizing to say that they've had a sexually transmitted infection that is now causing them to have cervical dysplasia or cervical cancer, but really normalizing it. You know, I'd say 90%, you know, of sexually active teens and 20 year olds have this virus. Most of us have gotten rid of it. Your body didn't. And it is laid dormant for many, many, many years. So really talking to them that this virus has probably been there for a while. It is not necessarily a new infection. It doesn't mean that somebody's having an affair or cheating on you, but really just mentioning that this, this is just a lifetime infection and we just need to treat it, take care of it and continue to move on. But I think having that discussion with a partner too, if she's with a partner um, is very important. And this person here asks, uh, do health departments generally offer HPV vaccine for uninsured teens? Or are there programs to obtain this vaccine for uninsured teens? That's a great question. Most departments of health have the VIC, Vaccines for Children, or VFC um, program. And so most health departments pay for the Gardasil and all the other adolescent vaccines up until the age 18. So that's really important to talk to your Department of Health to see how you can get those vaccines at no cost and making sure that we're able to vaccinate those younger children in the younger age groups before they kind of age out of those free vaccines. So it's another incentive to make sure that our teens are getting vaccinated because if we have a 21 year old, she may have to pay for those vaccines through insurance but if she's 17, we may not have to. All right, so if there's any other questions, feel free to type them into the Q&A box. Um, this person here wrote in the chat box, um, what about anal paps? I work with certain LGBTQ plus groups that will do those on men at risk, HIV plus usually. Yep, absolutely. So I think we could have a whole nother discussion on HIV positive um, populations that those men and women are at risk of anal cancer. And certainly if somebody has converted to AIDS, they do need anal paps. And so really working with a infectious disease provider or a person who has done experience in anal paps or um, even analoscopy. So doing colposcopy on a rectum and an anus um, is important. I've done anal paps on women who've not had, had HIV, but have had HPV related, um, colon things. I had a gal who came in who had a abnormal hemorrhoid and it turned out to be HPV. And so for follow-up, I did an anal pap. Um, and you just need to talk to your pathologist about how to collect those. So, but that's another good point is that even for our trans community and our LGBTQ, that if a trans male has a cervix and has not had that removed, they still need to undergo cervical cancer screenings. Okay. Um, so if there's any other questions, please type them into the Q&A box. Um, again, keep in mind that we will be sending out an evaluation tomorrow. Um, so keep an eye on your email box for that. And please just follow the link. Uh, to the survey monkey. And then once you complete the survey, uh, you'll be able to receive a um, certificate 
showing that you completed the course uh, for your continuing education. Um, this person here says, can you further discuss the risks associated with premature pap smears before the age of 21? Mike, are we still doing okay on time to finish these questions? Uh, yeah, we've okay. got nine minutes left. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So that's great. Um, a lot of pediatricians have come to me and I had a couple new pediatric nurse practitioners ask me about a year ago, like, well, what about warts? Well, if a you know, a teen is presenting with, with warts, treat the warts. It's not necessarily, you know, mean that she has high risk HPV. She's got warts. Um, and certainly getting her immunized with the Gardasil is going to be the most important thing. But if we're doing pap smears before the age of 21 and she has a high risk dysplastic lesion, now we're obligated as medical providers to do something about that. Um, so that may mean she gets referred to a gynecological oncologist and has to go through a cryotherapy, or maybe they do multiple colposcopies um, or invasive tests like a colposcopy. And then previously, a long time ago, providers were doing leaps or cone biopsies on these very young girls, 16, 17, 18 year olds. And now you're taking off part of their cervix, which increases their risk of infertility um, increases their risk of an incompetent cervix so that they can't carry a baby or can increase their risk of preterm birth. So really making sure that we're educating our teens that they don't, and for our providers or maybe our old school providers that aren't comfortable with not doing a pap smear on everybody that no, you don't need a pap smear before you're 21. Let's just wait. Let's get these young people vaccinated. Let's discuss their other concerns, you know, she's much more at risk of infertility. So we better be testing for gonorrhea and chlamydia. We need to be talking about syphilis. We need to talk about um, sexually transmitted infections and teen pregnancy, but let's leave the pap smear alone until she gets to be 21. Um, this person here asks, how does an HPV infection present in males? That's a good question. Certainly HPV can present as a wart. That would be a low risk type of disease. Um, or for males, they may have like a lesion. They may have something that just isn't can healing. They may, oh, I scratched myself and I've got a bleed, you know, maybe a sore on their penis or on their scrotum that continues to just bother them. Uncircumcised males are certainly more at risk because that foreskin is the same cellular component as the transformation zone of a female cervix. So for uncircumcised males too, that's another discussion point that HPV does grow more often on an uncircumcised penis. Um, so for practitioners who are discussing circumcision with their, with their pregnant moms or with their pediatric population as, as, excuse me, as newborns, that's a discussion point is that it is a risk factor for HPV infection later on. And certainly for our dental providers, um, doing cervical or oral cancer screenings that HPV lesions, they look like warts. They look like little pieces of cauliflower or lesions in the jaw on the gum line or in the mouth can be oral high-risk HPV infections. Um, this person here says, uh, is it recommended to get the HPV vaccine even after an abnormal pap smear result? Yes. So if the woman is um, 
of the age groups, even up to age 45, they should be counseled on getting the HPV vaccine. And that's going to be talked about, you know, with their insurance program or with their medical provider. I've had uh, the woman that's going to present with us next week as a cervical cancer provider. And after her cervical cancer was in remission and treated, her gynecologist or her gyne-onc um, actually had her get the Gardasil series because she had cleared that virus and we didn't want her to get another type of HPV. So just because you've gotten one type, it's like Omicron and Delta, you may get another type. So definitely doing the vaccines. They've done a lot of studies with doing, initiating the HPV vaccines after maybe cervical cancer treatment or after a leap or a cone biopsy so that that woman has cleared the virus, but she's not at risk of getting further HPV infections. Which kind of answers the next question, Mike, can a person have multiple HPV types? Yes. So even if you got HPV 16 and cleared it at some point, you could still get it again. You could still get another type. And in the research studies, they've shown that some women do have multiple types of HPV. So um, using the Gardasil 9 is important because it does have more cross uh, protection. And um, knowing that even if they had an abnormal pap smear once, they are not, at, not immune to getting another type. So they could clear it and get another type again as well. So going back to the last question, I think we missed, if the patient had the three doses of Gardasil 4, could they get the Gardasil 9? I think that's a really good discussion point, um, talking to the, to the patient, the relative, seeing what her risk factors are for HPV disease. And maybe that is a discussion point for her to have if she's had an abnormal pap smear, or if she has a new partner, that maybe she should get that Gardasil 9, even as an adult, because it's going to protect her against many, many more types of HPV. And then there's one other question here. Um, any advice? We're trying to hold a preventative health day for women. What services to offer? How, how to advertise what brings women in? Yeah, so I think it's always hard to, to do these preventative health days, but I think having across the board services, so not only just talking about cancer, but really talking about blood pressure, thyroid, hormones, um, birth control, making sure that's a one-stop shop. So when women come to me for their services, I'm like, Hey, you know what? You haven't had your thyroid checked. You haven't had your cholesterol checked. You haven't had your, sorry, <laughs> haven't had your other, um, preventative health screenings. So let's bundle those today. I'm going to send you to lab. We're going to do a full STD testing. We're going to do thyroid testing. If she's having some, maybe some irregular periods, I'll throw in some hormone testing as well. Um, because then, and then I can make a follow-up appointment with her as well to address those concerns. So now you've linked her into care and now she feels like she's valued that you're, I always say, you've lots of puzzle pieces. we got to put those puzzle pieces together. So finding those puzzle pieces for women, because oftentimes they don't have time to come in for those services and they, um, really appreciate being able to have everything taken care of at once. 
All right. Well, with that, um, I think we'll probably wrap it up since questions look like they've come to a close. Um, so if anybody has any additional questions, Amanda's email address is on the screen, amanda.youngers at gptchb.org. So go ahead and copy that down if you have any other questions. Um, again, we'll be uh, doing another webinar. Um, Amanda will be back next Wednesday, a week from today. So make sure you visit keepitsacred.org and register for the webinar there. And again, don't forget that we'll be sending out an email uh, tomorrow if you want your certificate of continuing education for today's presentation. Just fill out the evaluation for us and let us know how we did. And we'll go ahead and get that uh, certificate for you. Otherwise, thank you very much. And we hope you have yourselves a wonderful day. Thanks, guys. To view the full webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the Resources tab and the Webinar Archive tab. Thank you for listening to this Webinar Archive presentation from the National Native Network.